0: Hello and welcome to the Two View, the cutting edge educational and interactive show for nurse practitioners and PAs in emergency medicine and urgent care. I am PA Mike Sharma and I am here with my fabulous faculty partner, nurse practitioner Martha Roberts. Hello, Martha.
1: Hi, Mike. We just got back from an awesome week in Las Vegas teaching our boot camp course. Now a week in Las Vegas, uh, it sort of feels like a year to me. Like anything more than 48 hours is definitely unhealthy and it's all a blur. But the good news is, is that the course went off great and we had over 300 people there enjoying ultrasound procedures and our complex bootcamp. So it was good to see you.
0: And you just flew back from Key West, and and boy, are your arms tired, as the joke goes, I'm sure. So I bet that was awesome as well, and I bet you're going to get into that too. But uh, yeah, it was great to be back with the crew in Las Vegas, podcast number 11. We did it live from Las Vegas with some of our new instructors, Chip Lang, PA, Jesse Werner, MD, who is a new emergency medicine attending Lots of good stuff there to watch on YouTube or our streaming apps. You can catch that on 2 View Emergency. Just search for that on your podcatcher and we'll come right up. This month, though, we're back to our usual hijinks at our home studios and ready to go through some segments with you.
1: Yeah, so Mike, we're going to start off by having you kind of walk us through Odansetron or Zofran. Specifically, I want to talk about uh, how to use this with pediatrics.
0: Okay, so that sounds good. And then also after that, you are going to talk about auricular hematomas and auricular blocks. And you can also check out kind of more graphical in-depth stuff on that on your website, theproceduralist.org, www.theproceduralist.org.
1: Yep, and finally, we're going to end with a segment on herpes zoster and the latest greatest treatments, not to mention it seems to be making an ugly appearance more than normal these days.
0: I think it's ugly depending on who's got it, right? It just depends, <laughs> all right? And then I'll wrap up with something sweet. I'll talk about a very functional Christmas and holiday gift I think everybody should have, in addition to some changes coming on the pike in PA recertification.
1: All right, let's get right into it, segment one. Let's get this party started. Tell us what we need to know about Odansetron and kids, Mike.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I can't recall a shift in recent memory where I got done without seeing a vomiting child. I feel like just behind fever... A kid who is vomiting is going to be brought by with mom and dad to the ER or urgent care clinic because why? Like, uh, of course, the parents are concerned about their child being sick. But to top it off, the kid is sick and messy. Like, parents, who is going to change their kid's sheets or clothes twice or three times in one (laughs) night? Ain't nobody got time for that, okay? (laughs) Time to come to the ER where we can put a stop to this vomiting couple interesting articles that came out over the past two years about specifically on Dansatron in our pediatric patients. I thought we'd put them all together in one place in addition to a really brief look at pediatric vomiting and how to also efficiently handle this complaint in a busy, maybe even overcrowded, emergency department coming up this winter. So first off, vomiting, a super common emergency department complaint. If you combine that with your gastroenteritis chief complaint, it is in the probably top three of emergency department complaints, depending on which um, survey studies you look at. Uh, you know, in many kids, this is usually due to some sort of a viral syndrome. But just like I talk about in adults during our boot camp course, and not writing off vomiting as something benign, you just shoot with an antiemetic and you're done with vomiting, I think we have to be really careful about writing off pediatric vomiting. I mean, we're going to see five, 50, 100, 1,000 kids with benign vomiting and probably diarrhea that's probably going to resolve in a day or two. But if we're not looking critically at each one of those kids, we're going to miss that needle in a haystack kid, that one in a 1,000 kid that is really sick and the kid's going to get hurt and we have the opportunity to intervene positively. We're not going to talk about abdominal pain because that's an entirely different discussion in kids, but that is one of the things you're going to want to ask about or at least try to evaluate in this patient. You know, if they're not verbal, just try to get a feel for them on the exam. I like to sometimes have the mom push on the kid's belly instead of me because I feel like sometimes I just, there's anxiety about me pushing and so I like to have mom, you know, subtly push and see if the kid has a problem with that. Maybe that's a way to figure that out, all right? How about the color of the vomiting? We use these classic phrases like bilious vomiting or non-bilious vomiting. Well, bilious vomiting is usually the bad kind of vomiting, and that vomiting is either bright yellow or green in color. Hematemesis, that's also concerning, but then the question is, is that blood? Or is that like the red jello (laughs) the kids got before they came in? So hard to say there. That's something you got to assess here. How about length of vomiting? Most of our pediatric patients, again, we can't, we only have so many sheets we can put in the washing machine. So usually these kids are coming in after less than a day of vomiting. But if the patient's coming in and mom and dad say, This is day three, or we went somewhere else, we got on Dancitron and that failed, we're still having vomiting, we're concerned. That should make you put on your thinking cap a little bit here and make sure there is not some more um, you know, harmful cause of vomiting. Most kids, these harmless reasons for vomiting, they're ending after a day or two. okay? General presentation is really important. Most folks are worried about dehydration even after one episode of vomiting. It's like, oh my gosh, I think he's dehydrated. Let's put an IV into this person and give him fluids. But as we know, enteral rehydration is often best, right? And so if a kid can enterally hydrate, PO rehydrate, that's what we want. But if I look at a kid and they are truly lethargic or truly irritable, I get worried. Like, I have a face that scares children. I was born that way. That's how God made me. I can't help it. But after a while, you pick out the kids that are not just scared of you as a clinician, but like, they're extraordinarily fussy. They're truly irritable. And that makes me kind of like set up and take notice. On the flip side, we hear from parents, oh, Ginny or Johnny is lethargic. And meanwhile, they are destroying the room you guys are in. They're running around doing cartwheels. So like, you know, no, they're not lethargic. They just want to lay on the couch and watch Blippi or Cocomelon. So like, that's pretty, you know, common. But when a kid is difficult to arouse and just laying there like a lump, you know, in the middle of the day, especially, that's weird. Lastly, young kid, let's look at the fontanelle. Is it bulging while you're up there? Are there any other signs of head trauma? So those are just kind of some quick things I look at when I'm uh, kind of like doing a quick drive-by assessment of a kid who comes in with vomiting.
1: That's awesome. I absolutely love that recap, and I'm going to use that on my next shift just to run it all through my brain. But let's look at some of the studies. Let's look at study A. This is a 2021 study in the Journal of Clinical Infectious Disease entitled... Microbial etiologies and clinical characteristics of children seeking emergency department care due to vomiting in the absence of diarrhea. Now, why does this matter? Isolated vomiting may be just a virus, but it also may be the sign of other things. Rarely intracranial pathology or more commonly, UTI. How often do children with isolated vomiting have a routine viral illness?
0: Yeah, and so this study really speaks to what we just got done talking about: is that is this barfing kid just barfing from a virus, or is there some more serious thing going on here? So what this study involved was almost twenty-seven hundred kids in two Canadian emergency departments, and they did some molecular testing on either stool or an erectal swab if there was no diarrhea, looking for some sort of pathogen in the GI tract, right? If this is from gastroenteritis, we better see some sort of virus or something in the GI tract, all right? And so what they figured out was um, alternative diagnoses beyond uh, some just sort of uh, GI virus. Alternative diagnoses were found in these children about six percent of the time, with UTI being most common. So I am not using the study to tell you to not be concerned about pediatric vomiting. I'm still concerned about a vomiting kid. At the same time, more often than not, way more often than not, we're talking about some sort of a GI virus.
1: Yeah, actually, Mike, I'm kind of happy to hear about diarrhea. I mean, don't quote me on that later. But (laughs) if everybody in the house is having vomiting and diarrhea, I'm even happier. now. I'm sure that they aren't, and I, you know, shouldn't smile when I hear that, but um, that sounds kind of sick and wrong. But yeah, sure, the kid (laughs) could have something serious while everybody else is having something benign, but... I'm going to paint a reassuring picture here. Of course, you want to ask about blood in the stool or the vomit, but I'm actually more concerned about hearing about constipation because if there's constipation, is there something else going on, like an impaction or obstruction? Right. Um, you know, and I also want to ask the patients if uh, they've been barfing all day because, you know, if it's not coming out uh, the bottom and it's just coming out the top, that means that really nothing is going through. And again, I'm worried about obstruction or into susception or volvulus and I have to worry about those things as well.
0: Let's say you've done a great physical exam and whatever workup was indicated for this patient and you've ruled everything out and we figured out, hey, this looks like, at least for right now, a benign cause of this vomiting. You're probably reaching in kids' for Ondansetron. Let's talk about it. This is a relatively new drug. And when I say relatively new, I mean it came out around the time after Martha and I were kids. So we unfortunately did not get to take advantage of Ondansetron. First approved by the FDA in 1991 for post-operative, and chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting. But now, of course, we know it's it's used for darn near everything, okay? Every kind of vomiting. It is a serotonin 5H3 receptor antagonist. And what's nice about this drug is contraindications to the drug, pretty few. One of the biggest ones to know about is QT prolongation. So maybe ask about Family history of QT prolongation. Um, maybe you ask about uh, medications. Okay, so there are certain medications that, when you combine them with ondansetron, can kind of cause an additive effect for QT prolongation. In our adults specifically, if you're giving haloperidol for somebody who's having nausea and vomiting, you don't want to give the ondansetron and the haloperidol, the haldol, at the very same time. Both of those drugs can cause QT prolongation. All right. How about things like amitriptyline, okay? So our tricyclic antidepressants. How about our macrolide antibiotics like erythromycin? How about our azole class of antifungals? These are all different common medications that can cause QT prolongation and when you add it to the ondansetron it can cause maybe a, a more, you know, additive effect there. Of course, it comes in IV or IM formulation, but for kids, I feel like the most common form we're dealing with is the oral disintegrating tablet, the ODT. Now, I see a lot of folks do this still. This is not a sublingual tablet. It does not have to go under the tongue. Just get it in there somehow, right? So <laughs> little kids, especially these tablets are so small, right? If you're dealing with a 4-milligram tablet, usually if it's a smaller kid, so dosing, let's talk dosing real quick, right? So I like to my, – my ballpark dosing is this. If the kid is between 8 and 15 kilos, I give them a 2-milligram tablet, usually a half of those 4-milligram tablets. If they're 15 to 30 kilos, I give them 4-milligram tablets. 30 and above kilos, you can give them 8. But I'll be honest, I usually don't even give adults 8. I usually stop at 4 for adults. And so really it's a decision with me about I don't use it. I use 2 milligrams if they're between 8 and 15 keys. And above 15, I give them the 4. That's generally how I do it. And if you use, you got a kid who's kind of like not really compliant, just have the parent get that tablet and like just rub it. Rub it against the kid's gums and cheeks it's going to melt away. The kid will swallow the saliva, and down the hatch it goes.
1: Yeah, you know, I gave one of these to Ellie once, and I kind of just like threw it down the back of her throat. And she was like, ah, I'm choking on it. I'm like, no, you're not. It's already gone. Don't worry about it. These things <laughs> just they are like rapid fire. All right, so personally, I have a really low bar for reaching for Odansetron, at least one time for my child in the emergency department, whether it's mine or yours. To give them some comfort, these are horrible sensations to feel nauseous. Um, but you know, I think why is it important that we want to give this drug? You know, kind of quickly here, so you don't really want to have to sit them in their in your ED for another two hours after you give them this medication and then do a PO challenge. Um, I mean, can you really just give them this med, mic and then kind of wish them out the door?
0: You know, I think that really early on, we're taught about the, the magical PO challenge, like how important it is that if someone comes in and they say that they were vomiting before they came in, then they got to make sure before they leave, they are not vomiting. And I've come to kind of change my outlook upon that over the years. It's kind of like fever, right? Someone comes in with a fever and we figure out they have the flu, or they have COVID, or they have some like strep throat, a a good reason to have a fever. But the rest of them looks benign. They're gonna walk out of there with that fever. And I'm totally okay with that. And sometimes the nurses will say, hey, don't you want to treat that fever? And in my head, I'm like, why? This person's going to have a fever for the next several days. And sure, we can delay this child in the ED and we can upcharge them for some acetaminophen and some ibuprofen. And yes, we can say we treated their fever, okay? Not really. We gave them antiparesis. Their body fixes the fever later on. Okay, so switching gears back to- Well, the wait, vomit. before we
1: switch gears, you know- kind Okay, of re- here we it, go. <laughs> Sorry, it just kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, when Diane talks about vital signs at the course, you know, she reminds us that uh, vomiting isn't one of the vital signs, but sure, tachycardia uh, and temperature can be um, a vital sign. So- you know, certainly if this kid is just vomiting, but the vital signs are within normal limits, then I'd be, you know, more apt to kind of send them on their way. But fever, I do agree with you that, that okay, yeah, we're not going to hold them necessarily to treat their fever. But yeah, throw some Tylenol at them and uh, see if that helps them.
0: Yeah. I, I, yeah. So I think there's some, some wiggle room there. And definitely if the whole patient is looking more concerning, yeah, maybe you want to keep them. Do more of a workup and see where they go. I think that's where you're kind of going with that. And, and yeah, I'm I am definitely on board with that. Right? If we're looking at a person and go like, oh my gosh, this person could be septic or whatever, then yeah, let's and they have risks for for certain bad things. Yeah, let's go ahead and do that. I'm talking more about the kind of generally benign looking person with no comorbidities. They they have had a day of fever or a day of vomiting here. Do we have to keep them? Okay, so this. Paradigm of, of of the PO challenge, I think maybe needs to go away in our very reassuring children. Uh, and again, I this this means that you do whatever workup to make sure they're reassuring. You do whatever physical exam. You don't just blow them off after two seconds of talking to them. But once you've done that, right? Uh, the nice thing about this medication on Dantrolene being so new is that even though the parents that the kids are suffering and the parents are worried. The parents, remember, they didn't have on Dancitron when they were kids. Yeah. They had the bowl, right? They had the bowl. We all had a bowl. Every family had the vomiting bowl that they would use for other stuff like Halloween candy, right? But, like, when you were sick, it was it was the barf bowl, okay? Oh, and so you just have that bowl by yeah. your side all weekend long, and you barf into it so you don't have to clean anything, right? And so <laughs> I, I think when I mentioned that, that whole concept to parents, they kind of smile – And they think about their bowl or their trash can. (laughs) And that says to them, look, it's okay that Johnny vomited before he came in. And tell you what, he's probably going to vomit once or twice after he goes home. But that's okay. It's okay that kids vomit. It didn't kill us when we were kids. It's probably not going to kill them, the vomiting itself. Now, if there's a bad reason for the vomiting, yeah, that's, that's concerning. If the vomiting is maybe getting more severe in frequency or uh distance maybe then maybe you want to come back in if they're really starting to make some some distance records with their projectile vomiting that's a difference in quality of vomiting come back in for that if if you can't stop vomiting after two days for our our grade school kids if they haven't stopped vomiting after 24 hours for our toddlers then you come in for that duration but but one more episode of vomiting or two at home within 24 hours i think it's okay and if that's okay then why are we keeping folks in the emergency department to to what to, okay we're going to do a po challenge we're going to give them zofran i'm going to order the zofran and maybe in half an hour to an hour they finally get the zofran okay and then in a half an hour it's kicked in and then i go I try to see the patient right away, but if I'm tied up, it takes another half an hour to see the patient. And like, oh, they didn't vomit, super, and then they can go home, which is like, I feel like the vast majority, Martha. Wouldn't you agree? The vast yes. majority of PO challenges.
1: Absolutely, but they you pass. know. I- I totally agree with you there, but I kind of I want to skip study B and sort of talk about study C here about yeah. really this this uh 2020 Annals of Emergency Medicine Odansetron prescription is associated with reduced return visits to the pediatric emergency department. For children with gastroenteritis. So this study addresses whether an outpatient prescription here for odansetron, so not giving it at all, just giving them the prescription at discharge affects the rates of return to the ED for that group of patients. You know, so previous smaller studies did not show reduction in ED bounce backs with odansetron. So what does this massive study show now? So basically, stay at home with odansetron. Like, that's the poster here. This was a retrospective cohort study of pediatric patients aged 6 months to 18 years old who presented to the ED or urgent care with discharge diagnosis of gastroenteritis or vomiting. A total of 82,000-some patients were included. That's a lot of patients. Of which... About 8% received IV fluids, about half of them, 55% received odansetron in the ED, and another 13-some percent received a prescription for odansetron at discharge. Within a 72-hour period, 3,000, 4,000-some patients here returned to the ED. That's only about 4% here. Receiving a prescription for odansetron significantly reduced the odds of a return visit, um, factors that increased odds of return visit included younger age, receiving intravenous fluids or odansetron at the index visit, and having a radiologic study performed at the index visit. A prescription for odansetron did not increase the risk of patients returning with an alternative diagnosis like an appendicitis or intussusception. And I just want to say at the beginning, I may have said not getting odancetron at all. Actually, some, some, if not all, Mike, in this study received odansetron in the ER,
0: Yes. So, um, 55% received on dance turn of the ER and then about 13% got a prescription at discharge. Okay. So, um, So half and half here. Yeah. Yeah. Thereabouts. Right. So exactly. And, and I think that speaks to, yeah, exactly. So this, this basically says you can give them prescription for Zofran. You're not going to mask something horrible. Okay. Um, it, it does not increase the risk of the patient returning with a bad diagnosis. Um, and I think it's great, you know, uh, and we'll us talk about really quick the patient population here, right? So that's, that's always important when we talk about studies. You don't want to take a study for one patient population, try to apply it to the study uh, to a different patient population. So again, these are patients who have the discharge diagnosis of gastroenteritis or vomiting, okay? I may not give ondansetron to somebody who had a head injury, okay, and goes home, because I don't want to suppress vomiting in those patients necessarily, okay, but when we think it's something benign, yeah, I think it's totally safe and effective to, to give on Dancitron for sure. Um, I think in the end, if I could kind of sum up what we're trying to say here ondansetron is, let's really work on individualizing our treatment of vomiting children. Do we keep every kid for a PO challenge, who is coming with a chief complaint of vomiting, I really don't think you have to, especially with what I'm hearing about emergency departments all over the country right now, people boarding in the emergency department because they can't go upstairs, people stuck in the waiting room for 5, 10, 15, 20 hours here, you know, like, we have to keep on working on ways we can maximize our efficiency um, with this. And that absolutely does not mean we are taking the burden off of administration or other leadership to help us do our job no like they bear their own responsibility i don't think we had to fix stuff that's not within uh, our power to fix but this is something we's within our power to fix we can fix how long we keep a kid after we've done initial evaluation can a kid go home and they can do a po challenge at home and if you are really sick you come back i think that's just as good about as doing a PO challenge in the emergency department. It cuts down on a, a, an occupied bed or a vomiting kid in the waiting room here. I think it's a win-win-win for us as clinicians, the other patients in the waiting room, and, and the department as a whole here. So really tailor it to how the kid looks. If they need to stay for a PO challenge, if they're that sick, maybe you should just go and get Like For me, it's like either they go or... Or they're going to stay for not just a PO challenge, but also probably some labs, okay, and uh, oral rehydration therapy in the ED. We won't go too deep into that right now, but we are going to include in the show notes, and those are at 2view.fireside.fm. That's the number, 2view.fireside.fm. A great pathway from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, one of our favorite children's hospitals, I'd say. Great pathway there about how do you handle the vomiting kid, and what is this oral rehydration therapy? This is the main way I'm rehydrating kids in the ED, and that's basically mom or dad is syringe-feeding into the mouth a mix of Pedialyte and water or Gatorade and water, a great patient and parent oriented video there to give to parents and great information for us as clinicians about oral rehydration therapy and how that's just as good as sticking a needle into some kid to rehydrate them because we all yeah. rehydrate better, re- better by PO. Links will you know, be in the show notes.
1: You know, that's uh, how we bonded in Las Vegas. You syringe fed me. <laughs> I, I held you in
0: my lap and, and I stroked water. your hair and syringe fed you Pedialyte. Oh my gosh, that's terrible.
1: Oh, that was that was a good time, Mike. Anyway, so as we go from one orifice to another, let's move on to the ear, where we still might see some things come out of it: blood, pus, rumen, bugs, something else. Uh, let's talk about auricular hematoma. So I'm going we're gonna break this up into two parts. And essentially, it's kind of hard, as, as we know, to talk about procedures without this visual, visual aid here. But I created a, another blog listing with a video that you can take a look at on your own time. Now, auricular hematomas and auricular blocks are not something that we see or do um, very often. So I'm going to jump right into it. I had a great case recently. I wanted to share it with you. Let's break it down. A person's ear is not only important for hearing. It's a cosmetic nightmare if it's destroyed. So it turns out people really care if the ear looks bad. Yes, it's right next to their face. It takes a lot of time, patients' understanding of the ear anatomy, and knowing how to treat complications or trauma to the ear and the the pain in that sensitive area. There are many different types of skin layers and shapes and sizes of the ear, including cartilage, which can be difficult to work with or around. And I've seen some dog bites. I've seen some really bad trauma from falls. I've even seen a horse bite to the ear. I've seen Mm. a lot of really interesting things. But hematomas, especially traumatic hematomas, can cause a lot of damage.
0: I'll take a hematoma to the ear over a laceration of the ear any day of the week. Those are my most miserable suturing jobs was when someone cut their ear up. It's just such a, it's a mess with how the tissue is there. Well, part of that is just the structure of the ear. It's designed to funnel sounds into the middle and the inner ear, of course. All those nooks and crannies and shapes and folds are there for a purpose, okay? We've got the pinna, that's the outer, upper ear, and it's got this ridge of cartilage covered by skin that kind of funnels into the external auditory canal. It's really just an amazing testament to the ear. Good on you, ear, for doing such a good job on funneling sound in there. You can imagine how any disruption of the form of the ear will affect its function and affect one's hearing. We've also got the helix and the anti-helix. Those are a part of the upper ear as well. They have additional ridges that help with hearing and sound transmission.
1: Yeah, I mean, if you actually look at an ear, like they're so weird. They're just weird looking, and I think it's really important to review the anatomy. I put some pictures up in the video as well, just so you know what you're talking about. So if you do talk to ENT, you can accurately describe where the issue is on the ear. They will truly appreciate that. This so sounds just-
0: like uh, what a patient you know comes in intoxicated to the ED and is like yeah, intoxicated. Talk like, have you ever like. Looked at an ear, man. Like, <laughs> that sounds like where we're going with this. I promise we're both sober here.
1: Oh, goodness. All right, yeah, we, we're not in Vegas anymore. So, But also, just another interesting bit of trivia about the ear, the tragus, although some use it as a fashion-forward piece uh uh, place excuse me to pierce it's actually used to help protect the entrance of the ear and direct sounds into the ear amazing there's so the small prominent eminence of the external ear it's in front of the conca and it projects backwards over the meatus and you could often see hair in that spot its name actually means goat in latin so it's supposed to represent that tuft of hair like a goat's beard which i think is really interesting because the tragus faces rearwards Excuse me, backwards here, the pointed back. What we posteriorly, yeah, (laughs) posterior. Basically, that's how we hear sounds from behind us and distinguish what's in front and what's in back. So I just thought that was really cool.
0: Shout out to the tragus. Okay, (laughs) I like it. The lobe itself, that's at the bottom of the ear, you can have something like a, a separated lobe or a lobe that connects to the, the bottom of the ear. That's a very different tissue, as you know, sometimes a bit easier to suture repair than the upper portion of the ear for sure. It's got its own challenges, though. That's just a little reminder of the structures of the ear and how important they all are. And again, when there is some sort of a disruption here, there are definitely issues and ways we need to address those issues.
1: Right. So speaking of mangled here, if things get messed up, let's talk actually about the auricular hematoma itself. This is a collection of blood underneath the skin there of the ear, and it usually occurs secondary to trauma, but it can also come from an infection or other insult to the area. Um, So just remember that any auricular deformity in general that can happen, it can turn into something called cauliflower ear. And it literally looks like cauliflower. That's how it gets its name. It just looks puffy and weird and it never heals correctly. So when you're dealing with an auricular hematoma, you need to think that possibly this could happen to a patient. It's important to recognize and drain the collection early since a persistent hematoma can induce cartilage destruction with subsequent deformity of the ear or cauliflower ear
0: and you know there can be other issues with the ear that don't involve hematomas like perichondritis affections behind the ear like mastoiditis of course we're going to talk about our classic otitis media otitis externa but for right now let's keep it on track let's talk about auricular hematomas some more
1: Right. So let's dig a little deeper here. The treatment of auricular hematomas involves the drainage and the evacuation of the hematoma, either at the bedside, or they might even take these to the operating room. ENT can get aggressive about them if they're persistent or really bad. And they often will accumulate. I've seen it a few times, especially in this last case that I had. So to prevent reaccumulation, it's important that we talk about placing a bolster dressing post-drainage to basically block that potential space that the hematoma can reform into. And Obviously, you're consulting with ENT or plastic surgery. That's beneficial. They can help give recommendations regarding diagnosis, management, and follow-up. And sometimes, like this last case, ENT will admit their own patient to their service. What? Med- I know. It was crazy. There was a standing ovation. It was amazing. But <laughs> but every, every subspecialty at um, San Fran General is fantastic. Everybody is absolutely wonderful there. I have never seen a greater... Uh, Workmanship and female work. What is the word here? Work. I'm having trouble with Collegiality. words today. Collegiality between all the men and women that work there. It's fantastic. So let that be inspiring to you.
0: Nice. I'm inspired. I, I sit inspired. Okay. Very good. Let's move on to the next part of talking about this. The procedural apparel about both the drainage that we were talking about here, but also getting ready to drain the auricular block. Let's start for talk that's my turn i have some problems with my voice (laughs) let's first start talking about the basics of doing the blocking of the ear and there is a great video martha's demonstrating that on www.theproceduralist.org Uh, on a patient who has an auricular hematoma, and she's getting ready to drain it, okay? Um, Of course, you've also got the procedural pause while we're talking about Martha and procedures here. So the procedural pause on Emergency Medicine News, her and Dr. Jim Roberts wrote almost 10 years of columns on procedures in the ER videos, evidence-based practice here. Of course, you can also go to the uh, granddaddy Robertson Hedges Clinical procedures in emergency medicine and acute care. Martha does videos for the book and has contributed tons of images to help you know what to do. I think we have a new uh, edition coming out yep. in the next couple of year or two, right?
1: Yep, I'm picking up Jim uh, next week and we're getting uh, a whole layout done here at the house. So nice. Uh, we, we're really excited about that. So I love procedures. It's it's the one thing that I feel like when I you know I keep saying I can do something and help someone. It's really great. Um, But the basic keys to this particular procedure of doing a good auricular block are to, one, prep the patient well, meaning have them lay down comfortable, and two, have excellent lighting and know your landmarks. The rest is just putting lidocaine in the right spots. Now, remember, the skin is incredibly thin around the ear. It's very sensitive. So my clinical pearl first is to clean and then mark with a marking pen the sites that you're going to do the block. Do not guess when you get up there. You have everything already prepared. Set aside at least 10 to 15 minutes to do this block and don't be answering your phone or pages.
0: Okay, quick question here. I, I'm terrified of marking skin and then tattooing the patient if I inject like through the mark. So like what are, uh, I want to get to the nitty gritty because I think it'll help some people here listening. So are you marking the skin with like a skin pen and then you're going to uh, inject through the adjacent skin or what are you doing there?
1: So everybody is different. Um, to answer your question directly, I do use a skin marking pen that comes in the kit. Right. However, uh, I always make my mark and then go right above it on the body. Mm. So I, you know, some people might make their mark and go distally. Like, just always have a plan of where you're going to go. Make sense? Yeah. Okay. yeah. Yeah. Um, the goal, though, of the procedure is, is to anesthetize the nerves, you know, in the front or the back of the ear here. Anteriorly you're anesthetizing the auricular temporal nerve because it's on the temporal side, mm-hmm. and the posterior nerve being the greater auricular nerve. And this will numb the entire ear. Once you've got your sites marked and you're not tattooing the patient, <laughs> administer what I like to call a baby wheel. So this is my little procedural pearl that I love. A baby wheel of lidocaine, right, at your entry points, because you're going to make two entry points, but you're going to make four sticking um, diamond positions around the ear. And I'll explain that in a second here. So basically, you uh, you mark your spot on the top, you mark your spot on the bottom, you put your little baby wheel in, and you massage. Massage that medication in. It really provides a lot of relief when you give that other real hard stick that goes up and around the ear. So let's talk about those four main areas of injection. Like I said, in reality, it's just two spots, but you must numb the ear in a full diamond shape to get the block to be effective. Now remember that, the diamond shape, where the top of the ear is the top point of the diamond, and the lobe or bottom of the ear is the bottom portion of the diamond. And again, we'll show you some of those great videos online. But right now, whether you're driving or sitting at a desk, just reach up and grab your earlobe, And just behind that-
0: headphones okay
1: well you can still kind of shimmy your finger in behind your earlobe here all right and then that's your first entry point there of the bottom of the diamond and this is the posterior sulcus so you can make your little baby wheel of lidocaine there and then at the top find the very top of your ear here okay and put and then about one centimeter just above that okay and that's where you're going to make your second mark and you're going to put your needle in and basically inject about two to three mLs of lidocaine on each side to fully encompass the ear using a 25 or 27 gauge needle, super small, um, and have that full 10 mL syringe of lidocaine prepped and ready before you go in. I actually prefer to use a separate TB syringe needle field, filled mm. with the Lido to give my baby wheels, which is, I do that frequently for a lot of things. I even do it for IVs if I'm doing ultrasound guided IVs, and there's a lot of really great literature on that. But again, I'm going to show you some pictures and videos online. Go ahead and check those out. Another key is to stay tight, tight around the ear, tight around the ear, meaning truly outlining the ear in that diamond shape with your lidocaine as you anesthetize the area.
0: And you're letting that sit for like, what, 15 minutes or so after you do that block?
1: No, they're ready for in about maybe three to five
0: Wow, okay, gotcha, nice. All right, well, once you've blocked it, let's go on to draining the hematoma. So um, this is pretty straightforward. You take the 18 or 20-gauge needle with an empty syringe and you put it into the hematoma after the ear is numb and you pull back on the syringe and you suck it out. Okay, I don't think it's that easy, but it's pretty much it.
1: There's actually some cool videos online of them being sucked dry. They literally flatten out like whoosh. They just, they get flat right away. It's really cool. But unfortunately, those are the ones that reaccumulate pretty often. So the second way, Mike, for more stubborn or persistent hematomas is to do an incision and drainage and simply make an incision around or next to the hematoma to allow it to drain. And the key to doing this uh, cosmetic procedure well is to follow again two simple concepts. The first one being that you understand and recognize the body's natural folds and creases, structures and curvatures, specifically for auricular blocks and drainage, because creating entry sites for incision and drainage can leave the area damaged or scarred. And when you make an incision to the ear for an IND, stay along that inner crease, just within the helix, if that's where it is, and keep the incision small, but not too small that the hematoma won't drain. Second, Be familiar with Langer lines, Langer's lines, that's L-A-N-G-E-R apostrophe S or skin tension lines. So do a search for Langer's lines online and you can see where they are in the body. It's like a map. They're very complex in the face, but super important to know. Knowing the direction of these lines within the specific area of the skin is important for operations, particularly cosmetic surgery, but we also things on the body, and you should be mindful of these simple concepts. If a surgeon has a choice about what direction to place an incision, he or she may choose to cut in the direction of Langer's lines. Incisions made parallel to these lines may heal better and produce less scarring than those cut across. Conversely, incisions perpendicular to these lines have a tendency to pucker and remain obvious, And although sometimes this is unavoidable.
0: This is the cherry on the top, I think, of these invasive procedures we can do is to know these things and set the patient up for good cosmesis later on here because they've got to live with the, the scar we make on them. I want to point out something near and dear to your heart or more likely your neck, really the keloid, right? So keloids, yeah. they're more common when incisions are given across Langer's lines, okay? Um, and so when you say across, we're talking about perpendicular. That's when we're getting the the more likely to have keloid. Is that correct? Yeah. yes. Okay, so um, sometimes you're just not going to know the direction of those, those collagen fibers because there are some, like individual differences in certain regions of the body, but you should at least know the general trends and be mindful of the trends where the most common uh, orientations are those language lines. So check them out, look online. Um, you can just kind of Google or otherwise search for Langer's lines. And um, maybe you save that on your phone, like save it in a little folder on your uh, Google Drive or Microsoft Cloud, and that way you can kind of quickly refer back to it the next time you're gonna do something invasive.
1: Yeah. You know, actually, I remember um, the uh, attending and the resident came in to talk to me about my scar. And they actually said that they made the first incision, quote, the wrong way. (laughs) That was reassuring to hear. And they were concerned because there was one larger spot on my neck that basically was just cut open. And then, of course, the additional, uh, you know, slitting of the throat with the scalpel. So they said, you know, we're kind of a little bit worried. We had to put some extra sutures in there, but you'll be fine. Turns out, Nope, been dealing with that keloid for a very, very long time. Very Mm. painful steroid injections. I've even used topical um, uh, tacrolimus on it. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I'm fine. I'm alive and I got rid of that tumor and that's all I care about. But finally, I want to talk about the most important part of draining a large auricular hematoma. The most important part is adding this bolster to prevent reaccumulation. And I call this an ear sandwich, basically. (laughs) Surrounding the ear with pressure on the front and the back, with this packaging so the hematoma, hematoma can't reaccumulate. I can't stress this enough. If it's not done correctly, all that time and effort you put into making the ear look good or fixed is completely wasted. And I've seen patients return even with what we thought was a good bolster. So basically, put something soft and wet, moist gauze or zero form on the hematoma itself in a tight wad where it was, and then place something behind the ear, again, ear sandwich. And we will come up with some photos here on the uh, uh, website you can take a look at to look at bolsters. And check out Michelle Lynn's version. She's uh, at UCSF, really wonderful that she does her blog as well. And she gets super fancy and uses a plaster like kind of mold for the ear. It's really cool. So take a look at that. You can also just use the gauze in zero form too. Lastly, Something a lot of people forget is to give this patient pain medication so that nerve block is going to wear off. Your job is definitely not done. If you've done an auricular block, expect to have the patient in severe throbbing ear pain about three to four hours or less after the procedure. So I like to mix a little lidocaine with bupivacaine to prolong the effects for my anesthesia for the block, but everyone tolerates that block differently. There are, uh, if there are no other contraindications, and you plan to deliver the pain medication orally in a timely manner, you can get that in there. However, why not give a dose of Toradol or maybe a little morphine or Dilaudid if they're coming out of that? I mean, that it's so painful. It, it, there's just nothing, you, you can't put your hand on it to soothe it. There's nothing you can do. It's a horrible, horrible pain. So combine your medications, um, the acetaminophen and ibuprofens are really good, and of course the opioids if you need to go that way.
0: All right, yeah, I'm all about the multimodal analgesia, one of my favorite phrases here. Let's go ahead and give them two different pain medications. Why not? It's okay to do that, Okay. Well, um, you know, of course, consultation with ENT, very important. Make sure the patient is aware of that outpatient follow-up with ENT, knows the plan and what to do. Um, You know, in rare situations, I feel like people will need admission for uh, monitoring and pain control, just depending on on how uncomfortable they are. And it's important to just check back in with ENT prior to uh, the discharge if they've been involved. You know, like if you bring them in early, and you do the procedure, you're going to discharge them here. You can go and drop a message again to them and say, hey, uh, we got it straight. We're about to discharge them. Please expect them in your office pretty shortly. Make sure everyone's clear about when the next appointment is scheduled. It's nice if they can walk out of there. A lot of a lot of ERs have these services now where you can leave the ER and know when your next outpatient appointment at a specialist is scheduled. We're doing that with orthopedics. In our ED, I really think it improves um, that connection to the specialty care we did it because we had a lot of folks that were not making it to ortho and having problems so if you can figure that out for ent for regular hematomas all the better
1: yep okay <clears throat> so segment four our last segment zaster all right finally we're ending here There seems to be an influx in herpes zoster shingles recently. Let's remind ourselves what shingles or zoster is and why it happens in the first place. At the end of this segment, we are going to answer some really hot topic questions that people always ask about shingles, and we're going to give you some evidence-based support, you know, like, is it contagious? How long are the symptoms? Can you get it twice? Et cetera. So stay tuned for that last little bit of Q&A.
0: Okay. As we know, chicken pox, herpes zoster, caused by the same varicella zoster virus, also known as human herpes virus number three. Chickenpox is your acute primary infection uh, phase of the virus. Herpes zoster shingles is that reactivation of the virus from the latent phase. This reactivation can be for a lot of reasons, okay? Sometimes there's like a, a response to stress in the body, some sort of immunocompromised state, or sometimes bad luck. Sometimes the cause is completely idiopathic. We have no idea why the shingles popped out.
1: Yeah, when I was young, Mike, you know, I tell the story at boot camp. My mother took me to a chicken pox party. It was mm-hmm. very rude, but um, there were parents that did this. They put all their sick kids together to share the virus, and I know it's crazy. Um, and that's what my mom did, and we've, we've gotten over that. But anyways... I went to the chicken pox party. I got the chicken pox really badly. I had it on my face, on my tongue, in my mouth, on the bottom of my feet, all over my nose. It was horrible. Um, And now we have a vaccine for the chicken pox, and that helps prevent cases of both chicken pox in the latent form of this herpes virus, shingles. But for me, um, personally, just experiencing my own case of shingles, thanks, Mom. Thanks, Mom, a lot.
0: Yeah, and not to mention that there are some severe complications of chickenpox. As well, people get hospitalized. People have like permanent problems, neurological problems from this. So it's not just about um, getting rid of that discomfort from the acute phase and the shingles down the road. Let's talk more about that rash of zoster, the reactivation. It can happen anywhere in the body. Commonly, what we're dealing with is a rash in one or two adjacent dermatomes. So it's a localized reaction. Usually it's on the trunk, on a thoracic dermatome, usually does not cross the body's midline. If it does, it's just a very, a millimeter or a couple of millimeters, centimeters here, not very far across that midline, because you can have some kind of interweaving of your dermatomal nerve fibers there. Less commonly and more seriously, the rash can be more widespread and affect three or more dermatomes. This is called disseminated zoster, and this generally occurs only in people with, you know, compromised or otherwise suppressed immune systems. That can be difficult to distinguish from varicella. So if you see, you know, the zoster rash, you really want to make sure you understand, like, have you had this before? You know, kind of count, eyeball your dermatomes and make sure this is not a bigger region than it should be with just your localized zoster. Usually the rash is painful, itchy, or tingly these symptoms may be there before the rash shows up. So they may complain of just come to the ER because they've got this pain. They have no idea why. And then they go home and have their zoster rash. Sometimes there's other kind of like more constitutional systemic things like headache, some sensitivity to bright lights, some malaise. These are all kind of nonspecific. So it can be kind of hard sometimes to figure out what's going on there. Eventually, the rash erupts and you get a cluster of vesicles, so little bubbles here. And over the course of three to five days, these continue to form, and then they dry out, and then they crust over. After about two to four weeks, they are pretty well all healed up. There can be some permanent pigmentation changes and scarring on the sins. And some patients have pain that lasts for months after the infection, this post-herpetic neuralgia. My poor mom is suffering from that a little bit right now, and she's kind of going through um, this complication and trying to figure out how she deals with that post-herpetic pain. Um, And the definition of that is having pain for more than 90 days, nine zero days after the rash onset. This post-herpetic neuralgia can last for weeks, months, even for years, and be really uncomfortable too. Um, the risk of having post-herpetic neuralgia increases with age, so older adults, like my mom, aren't more likely to have longer-lasting, more severe pain. Approximately 10 to 13% of people 60 years of age and older with a will get post-herpetic neuralgia. Pretty rare, though, in people younger, like, younger than 40 years old. okay other predictors of whether or not some may get this or not, is the level of their initial pain with the acute phase and the size of their acute rash.
1: Yeah, so we'll post some pictures here of my personal experience with shingles recently. Um, I've had a pretty stressful year, I know a lot of other people have, and I really think that that is what brought this out, I just between Vegas and working day-night rotation and just, oh man, it's been really tough. Um, I will show you these pictures. I noticed something called Hutchinson's sign where I started to get the shingles uh, on my nose. And I remember having chickenpox really bad on my face and in my mouth and on my tongue. And then you you can see from some of these pictures, um, I had some flattening of the nasolabial fold. Then I developed a, a sore on my mouth and in my lip and inside up under my upper lip. Oh, it was just absolutely terrible. But the reason why I bring this up is because there can be permanent blindness from ocular shingles and it's a true emergency if you see it and shingles on the face can be super dangerous so lucky for me I literally felt this numbness and tingling kind of come on and then it like erupted and I start I knew what it was right away and got my treatment and we'll talk about treatment in a minute but uh, the dermatome basically is expressing that of, the, of the, uh, the fibers of that specific nerve. And most of the skin, you know, is, it's innervated by these spinal nerves, but the face receives cutaneous innervation from the cranial nerve, the trigeminal nerve. Um, the trigeminal nerve, or the fifth cranial nerve, is the largest cranial nerve in the body. It gives rise to three divisions of branches. We've known as the ophthalmic division is V1, maxillary V2, and mandibular division is V3, which they can provide innervation um, for sensory and skin on the face. So if you look at these color divisions of V1, V2, and V3 branches, you can determine what area of zoster has attacked based on that localization of the rash. In regards to ophthalmic herpes zoster, the V1 division is most commonly involved in the herpes virus infection involving the trigeminal nerve. And when the infection occurs along this division, the vessels can, vesicles can erupt along the branches of the nerves And involve the cornea of the eye. And recognizing this clinically is important because it can lead to very painful corneal ulcers, scarring, blindness... And you should associate any vesicle on the tip of the nose or inside the nose, this Hutchinson sign, with ophthalmic involvement due to their shared innervation. And you may also see dendritic lesions on the slit-lamp exam when the eye is stained. Now, we could do a whole talk on ocular shingles, but the key here is recognizing the distribution of the rash and the possible involvement of the eye because close ophthalmological follow-up is crucial and rashes on the face Always deserve a solid workup and treatment, and above all else, good history and examin- examination with that slit lamp.
0: One of these days, I'm gonna see that dendritic pattern, and uh, you'll know. I'm gonna call you because, like, I- <laughs> I've been waiting. I I see these like suspected ocular shingles cases all the time. As far as you know, you got these lesions to in that V1 distribution, and uh, I-, I never quite see it, but I sure do call ophthalmology or make a consult with them because I want ophthalmology to see where this goes, okay? Aside from the face, zoster also attacks the trunk like we mentioned, the back, the abdomen. Many times patients will have like just kind of vague abdominal or back pain, and and you're you're asking them all the things we always ask and trying to pin them into like, is this a GI thing, a musculoskeletal? And nothing ever sorts out, you know, and it's just kind of weird. You kind of discharge them. You're like, well, you have abdominal pain. Come back if you get worse, 8-12 hours, you know. But, uh, you know, what happens with these patients is after a few days, that goes by, and boom, out comes the rash that ends up being zoster.
1: Yeah. So, more and more young people are experiencing shingles. I feel that this illness originally was attacking older populations of patients, but the youngest I've seen shingles now is in a 27 year old female so let's Mm. talk about treatment let's talk about treatment Um, specifically antivirals and steroids and what the latest evidence says and supports and then we could break it down into pain treatments and then answer our q and a and be done today so mike tell us about the antivirals which is the tried and true get them in and get them in fast
0: well, I want to ask about this twenty-seven-year-old female real quick. Like, you don't have to get too crazy about it, but like, were there any sort of risk factors, like we talked about with immunosuppression or anything like that, that that led her to get the shingles at a young age?
1: Yes, actually, um, she had been diagnosed with an autoimmune disorder, um, and mm. in the last month, her father died, her mother died, and she was diagnosed. Um, With uh, – something came back abnormal with her thyroid function, and she was concerned about some imaging that she had, and I think her boyfriend dumped her, and just, like, her life was awful, and both her – to lose both your parents in one year is so hard, and it's it's such a young age, like, she hadn't been married, and, you know, it's just – oh. I just felt really sad for her, but um, I actually have a great picture of her leg with the diagnosed shingles. We swabbed it and it came back positive, so I will post that as well in our liner notes.
0: Wow, she had all the things going on, all the risk all factors. the things. That's terrible. Okay, yeah. Well, let's talk about those antivirals and you know how long and how how much here. Okay, the earliest possible time you can get those in the better. Okay, and we talked about like. Zofran, do we have to do it in the ER? I'm giving somebody their first dose of antivirals for shingles in the emergency department because I want them to start that. Okay, because nowadays there are no I don't have 24 hour pharmacies in my town anymore. And I live in Dallas, Texas, you know, and it's hard to find a 24 hour pharmacy. I want them to start right away. Um, the Emra Guide to Antibiotics also has some antivirals in there. They're suggesting oral acyclovir and so the acyclovir is weight based you know it's not necessarily just a straight up milligrams here or my personal go-to is the valacyclovir now usually for adults we're talking valacyclovir One gram by mouth, three times a day for seven days for our first go at shingles. Um, Nowadays, it used to be very expensive, the Valacyclovir, but I think for compliance, you go with it because three times a day, you get a coupon from any one of the different prescription-saving websites like GoodRx, and, and it's really not much different in price than Acyclovir. Famciclovir also is a possibility. That's 500 milligrams by mouth, three times a day for seven days. What if you are immunocompromised? Okay, so a lot of immunocompromised patients may need to get IV treatment of antivirals here, or maybe some higher doses of oral antivirals here. But the biggest thing is get them in as soon as possible. The studies show that the sooner they're given, the better the course of the illness and there are very few side effects from antivirals even at high doses so this might be one of those times where if you kind of think it might be you just go ahead and err on the side of caution and give them those
1: yeah it's like i walked into work and i had my valtrex bottle and had been on treatment for a couple of days and i just like hold it up to my mouth and dump it in they're like do you know how many you're taking i'm like doesn't matter okay i'm just getting it in no that's not true i i did take i think um four grams my my first day and i honestly yeah no i had a little diarrhea and i kind of had a bit of a headache but otherwise i had no side effects from these super high doses wow so a word on steroids yes or no So people get really confused about the addition of steroids, and steroids really aren't for the treatment of improving shingles, looking at the studies. Like, it's not really there. So steroids may help to reduce swelling and inflammation, and a short course of steroid tablets or prednisone may be considered in addition to the antiviral medication, Um, that's to help the pain and maybe speed up the healing of the rash. However, the use of steroids in shingles is controversial, and steroids do not really aid in the overall healing of the zoster, really. But the pain control and inflammatory control can be of great value. And orally administered corticosteroids are commonly used in the treatment of zoster, even though clinical trials have shown variable results. And prednisone used in conjunction with acyclovir or other antivirals has been shown to reduce the pain associated with herpes zoster, when looking at some of the literature. The likely mechanism involves decreasing the degree of neuritis caused by the active infection and possibly decreasing the residual damage to the affected nerves.
0: Right. Also, there are some studies that were designed to evaluate the effectiveness of prednisone therapy in preventing post-herpetic neuralgia, okay? And some studies suggest there was decreased pain at 3 months and at 12 months past the acute infection. Other studies demonstrated no benefit. Sometimes steroids get added later in the game. Maybe they would have been more effective if I started earlier. Um, The literature is kind of out on this right now.
1: Yeah. And the use of orally administered prednisone is, when it's not contraindicated, you know, sure, give that in there. It can help help with the pain, um, despite its questionable use. I mean, I I took a dose, um, a couple doses of prednisone. I don't really think it helped with my pain. I was just in so much pain, and it was my nose- It's really, really awful. But if you're going to give prednisone, consider the following. The onset of the illness and rash, age of the patient, the contraindications of giving it, and the level of pain and distribution of the rash. And... We know it doesn't really answer your questions about steroids and zoster, but like I said, in my case, I took it, and it didn't really help that much. Eh, so then again, there's your single case study control trial.
0: There's the end of one. Okay, well, more, more to follow. Okay, we'll keep that out in the literature for more studies there. Good opportunity for research for some listeners there. What else can we use for pain control? Okay, so we talked about how the pain can anywhere from just itching to excruciating. And sometimes the good old fashioned acetaminophen and ibuprofen are not gonna be enough here. Some folks prescribe opioids, but this can be kind of tricky because, as we know, opioids aren't best in treating neuropathic pain. This is neuropathic pain. And so, you know, maybe we need to think about something else here. So there are topicals, right? So there's things like lidocaine cream and patches caladryl, calamine, capsaicin, you know, and those can be used once the lesions have crusted over, like a little bit later on in the course here. We mentioned kind of prednisone or steroids, something to consider. Um, That long-term pain though, so that, that was all acute stuff. How about that Post neuralgia pain, and, and that can last for a long time. We're going to have a link to the American Family Physician Journal in our liner notes, to view.fireside.fm. A great summary of different treatments there. Um, there are other options like tricyclic antidepressants, careful if you're on ondansetron. remember, <laughs> and other antidepressants for pain, anticonvulsants like phenytoin. Um, how about? Gabapentin. We use Gabapentin all the time for neuropathic pain, right? So how about in this one study, we have elderly Gabapentin-naive subjects, no matter uh, whether they got 200, 400, 600 milligrams per day of Gabapentin, there was a moderate benefit in pain relief with minimal side effects at the first three days of treatment. Those are pretty like low doses, like 600 milligrams per day. That's like under where I usually start folks um, as far as my first kind of tapering up dose there. So that's kind of nice. You don't have to worry about maybe too much sedation in the elderly patients. You know, since starting with that minimal dose of 200 migs per day didn't offer a better reduction of side effects, some clinicians and this study in particular, suggests that you go with that six hundred milligram dose per day of gabapentin. That could be a safe and effective starting dose for patients with postherpetic neuralgia, even our geriatric patients.
1: Yeah, but you know, I look at these other studies. There's a double-blind, randomized control trial that looked at gabapentin and it compared to the placebo again to assess the efficacy of a five-week course of gabapentin on acute herpetic pain and on the prevention of post-herpetic neuralgia at 12 weeks in patients with shingles. And that study looked at 17 primary care health centers in Spain. All the patients were older than 50, and they had uh, presented with zoster within 72 hours of the rash onset. They had moderate to severe pain. 98 patients were randomized to receive gabapentin or placebo. And all the patients received valiciclovir for seven days and if needed. The treatment period was five weeks followed by a seven-week follow-up, and gabapentin was initiated at 300 milligrams a day and gradually titrated to a maximum of 1,800 milligrams a day. The main outcome measure was pain at 12 weeks, okay, this post-herpetic neuralgia. And looking at the results, patients taking gabapentin reported worse health-related quality of life Mm. and poor sleep quality. Three patients discontinued the trial due to the adverse effects of the gabapentin. So the gabapentin treated the pain in some, but still it ruined their lives. So anyways, the study concluded that the addition of gabapentin- To the usual treatment of zoster within 72 hours of the rash onset provided no significant relief from post-herpetic pain or the prevention of post-herpetic neuralgia. Huh.
0: Okay. Well, there is a nice Cochrane database review as well if you want to check that out. Keep in mind, if we're going to be treating gabapentin for neuropathic pain um, and getting effective treatment there we're, we're going to want to kind of work up to higher doses potentially. But the downsides here are our side effects commonly of drowsiness, somnolence, sedation, not great things for the geriatric population, which is more commonly getting the post neuralgia. You're going to want to start at low doses and titrate up to the therapeutic dose. So be aware of this dosing pattern. I, you know, I'm Martha, I don't know. I'm, I'm usually doing kind of like you start out with, your first dose is going to be just at night for a couple of days, and then you do it BID for a couple of days, then TID, and you kind of work on to that certain tier over about, you know, six to seven days here. That's kind of how I do it. Um, yeah, so,
1: Mike, titrating to the point of less pain but still be able to walk is the goal. Yeah,
0: exactly. You don't want them falling out of bed or, or falling, going to the bathroom in the middle of the night here. That's, that's, that's concerning.
1: Yeah. So there you have it, folks. Mixed literature again. Gabapentin may or may not ruin your life. Some people love it. Some people (laughs) hate it. Uh, Mike, let's do a rapid fire here and end with some of these quick question and answers. The CDC, the World Health Organization covers pretty extensively. Let's do the top 10 and then end this episode and get some hot chocolate. All right. It is
0: sweater weather here in Texas already. So let's go ahead and do this. Is zoster contagious? Number one.
1: Okay. Direct contact with the fluid from the rash blisters can spread the herpes virus to people who have not had chickenpox or received the chickenpox vaccine. If they get infected, they will develop chickenpox, not shingles. They could then develop shingles later in life. You cannot spread shingles to other people. So for example, let's say I hang out with my friend who had the chickenpox earlier in life. I have shingles. Can they get shingles from me? No, they cannot. In general, keep this in mind, the risk of spreading the herpes virus to others who have not had the chicken pox or have been vaccinated is low if you covers if you cover the shingles rash. People with shingles cannot spread the virus before the rash blisters appear or after the rash crust. All right, number two, Mike. You already talked about this a bit, but what's the best antiviral?
0: You know, my joke here is always that I don't do anything five times a day. So a year, five times a day, even though it's efficacious in treating shingles here, I think that the amount of you know times you have to take it really drops us down to the number three for me. Um, I usually go with valacyclovir. That's again, a one gram PO three times a day for seven days here. But famacyclovir, I really want to look at the cost of that. I don't really look at that one because not a lot of folks say I can't take valacyclovir, but I can take famacyclovir. So like, usually I don't have to go there, but I'm curious to look into that some more. It's a little um, bit remem- cheaper.
1: I will tell you that it is, is a little it bit really? cheaper. Mm-hmm. Oh,
0: dang. Okay. Well, there you go. I'm going to look into that for sure now. Okay. Um, remember about your immunocompromised patients, they may need IV or higher dose P-O therapy. All right, Martha, number three, can you get shingles more than
1: once? Oh, God, I hope not in my case, but yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. Herpes is the gift that never stops giving. Merry Christmas from the herpes virus. Once you get shingles, you usually won't get it again, but some people do. And don't discount it just because someone had it before and it resolved. People who have weakened immune systems are more likely to get shingles and are more likely to have it again and again and again. So number four, Mike. Should I take a culture if I see this patient in the ER? Is this a good idea?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those things, um, often you know when you see it, but there are some mimics, right? Okay, there could be impetigo, staph, MRSA, uh, you know, candidiasis, dermatitis. Uh, There's lots of different things that look like shingles. So, in my opinion, if you're really not sure, yeah, go ahead and get a culture, okay? I'm tangent i'm swabbing hsv all the time because i see hsv looks like hsv but a lot of patients want to know for sure if they have it or not so i I culture that same sort of thing here you find an open vesicle or you kind of unroof one with an 18 gauge needle and you send off a pcr for your vzv virus here and i don't know culture while you're at it okay and check for bacteria too okay number five martha mupuricin topical capsation lidocaine what say you about topicals here
1: all right, I love the idea of Mupirocin. I love that, I think it's a miracle ointment. I use it for a lot of different things. It can help prevent further skin infections and can be used as a lubricant to the area, especially if it's on the face or in the nose, so it was useful for me. I do suggest it if you have any kind of um, nasal or facial shingles for sure, or a big open crusted lesion that's really painful and you want to just kinda wanna put that on and cover it up. Anything that looks infected, certainly that's going down a different avenue. But there is some debate about the capsaicin cream or the topical lidocaine. Eh, I think sticking with orals is fine, but consider the topicals for patients who maybe have a more milder case and don't want to take anything orally. So number six, Mike, let's move to vaccines. How effective is the shingles vaccine?
0: Yeah, real good. Okay. Experts recommend the shingles vaccine for anyone 50 or older who has had chicken pox even if you've already had shingles. Okay, the vaccine can reduce the risk of getting shingles again even even if you've already had it, okay? Shingrix is probably the most common vaccine for shingles, more than 90% effective at preventing shingles and long-term nerve pain. I heard more than 90% is good, okay? Number 7. Moving on, if I didn't have chickenpox, but I did get the chickenpox vaccine. Can I get shingles?
1: If you've never had chicken pox and are vaccinated against the disease chicken pox, you can't get shingles. Period. Okay. Number eight. If I had chicken pox and I want the shingles vaccine, can I get it?
0: Um, clearly, you weren't listening to question number six. Yes, you should get the shingles vaccine even if you had chicken pox. I guess I should do that, too. I had chicken pox when I was at, at Disney World or Land. I forget.
1: What's the one in Florida?
0: <laughs> World. Okay. That's where I was.
1: Good. All right. Mike, number nine, how likely is it that a person will get shingles?
0: Pretty likely. About one in four healthy adults may get shingles. It's usually after age 50. Chances go up big time after age 60.
1: Okay, finally, number 10, Mike. Everyone wants to know, how long will it last if I get shingles?
0: Yes, so... These blisters usually scab over in about 7 to 10 days. The rash takes about 4 weeks to go away. The rash doesn't usually cause scarring, but it can if you're lucky. And remember that post neuralgia can happen for months after an infection. It looks like you've got a great link to our Centers for Disease Control um, overview for clinicians about shingles at the Two View website. Is, there, is that right? Correct. Okay. Well, I'm going to go real quick on our something sweet. I'm not going to show everything in my little bag of goodies here, but this is my little gift I, everyone should have. Um, this is it. This is my little orange bag. Okay. This is my medical bag that I have in both of my vehicles. Now this isn't a medical bag for things like band-Aids or uh, calamine lotion or hydrocortisone cream. Yeah, I got that too. This is, if I get into it, really bad, okay? So this is for bleeding control. I think every one of us should be experts at bystander trauma and bleeding control. I think for every AED we see out there, you should see bleeding control devices next to that AED. So Let's just kind of go through what I have here. There's lots of upsides you can get these from here. I personally got this bag and all the stuff in it from a place called MyMedic. You could go right to the source of a lot of these things called uh, at uh, North American Rescue, but lots of places here. So here's what I've got, number one here. Martha, what do you think about this? I've got a tourniquet. This is a combat mm-hmm. application tourniquet, the cat tourniquet. Okay.
1: Cool. I like it.
0: All right, and so these are nice because you can put them on yourself, one handed. There's other kinds of tourniquets that are good and not so good, so be careful what kind of tourniquet you get. Really look into the studies here. The soft T is the other one I recommend personally, S O F T T tourniquet here. Yeah, let me borrow that
1: one for next Saturday night. Yeah,
0: no kidding (laughs) here. Where are you going next Saturday night? Maybe I should come. Okay, I have here a (laughs) 14 gauge, three and a quarter inch needle, and these are great for needle thoracotomies in case you have to do that. Now, I think that, honestly, the risk of these are pretty, like, overblown here. We all were trained in the military, like, you never know. You will have to pop somebody's chest here. I don't know. I don't see a lot of people coming in um, with EMS, with um, needle decompressions from the field. What do you see, Martha, at the uh, the Zuck? Do you see a lot of no, folks getting popped in the not, field?
1: Not so much, no.
0: So maybe for folks, if you, are like, have delayed field care, you're away from medical care for a while, you might want to have that. Let's say you don't need to use a tourniquet. I've got here an emergency trauma dressing. And so the idea here is you put that on and it has some kind of bandages you can tie. And you really can, it's also called, I believe the Israeli dressing. I don't know if we wanna go regional, but it's got kind of this like a a little bar integrated with the bandage and you use the bar to kind of further help tighten it up here. I probably should pull it out but I don't wanna break the seal on this. You can look up emergency trauma dressing or Israeli dressing. What else hey, do I have in here? Okay. Oh, yep. I also have a bleeding control dressing. Okay. And so Quick Clot is your brand name for this. This is mainly for your non-compressible uh, hemorrhages here. Everything else I can compress, I'm going to want to put a pressure dressing on. But if you have an axillary, a groin wound, some sort of like a junctional wound, that's a place you can use your um you know hemorrhagic this has basically uh, uh, d- chemicals in it that help to stop the bleeding and i'll tell you I-, I wouldn't think that this worked but we had to do this before we went to afghanistan and what we called the caprine animal model lab basically we had an animal model where they induced an arterial bleed in this animal model and we said okay they the said okay fix this bleed and so we shove. we follow the directions Put this specially treated gauze into this animal's groin area, and wouldn't you know, essentially a femoral bleed stopped with the chemicals and the direct pressure from this dressing. So, like, I wouldn't have thought it would have worked unless I tried it myself. So, that's just a quick look into my orange bag. I like that it's orange because I just like orange. And number two, if... Do I need to get the orange bag out of my trunk? There's only one orange bag in my trunk, okay? And so there's no confusion. Someone runs back with a medical bag. It's that they've brought out my my battery charger or something else, right? So they, they know what the orange bag is if I say get the orange bag. So that's a nice thing to have here. Christmas is coming up here. So if you guys don't know what to get for your loved one, maybe get them the gift of bleeding control.
1: I love that's that. show and tell, okay? Very nice, Mike.
0: One more something sweet. We'll have a link in the show notes here. PA recertification changes. Let's talk about it. NPs don't have to recertify periodically for better or worse for their certification. PAs do. That's Big not true. Attention- Wait a minute. Okay. We do? Really? We do.
1: I have yes, I have to re Well, I don't sit for a test, but I ha- when I'm recertifying for my PNP, I have to do it every year.
0: Well, we have to sit for a test.
1: Oh. So, okay. We
0: sit for a test and if we fail the test, a lot of folks can't practice if they fail uh. the test. Okay. And these are usually general medicine tests. And so it's hard if you've been like in pediatric neurosurgery and you got to go think about, you know, mm. uh, shingles again, uh, you yes. know, or, or, or Zofran on Dancitron here. So the short story is beginning in 2023, PAs will have two options for the recertification assessment the traditional pan re, where you sit. Uh, you know, in a uh, testing center for a couple of hours on one day or two days, sometimes that's one option. The other option is the alternative longitudinal take at home test. And a lot of folks, PAs had trialed this over the past couple of years. A lot of folks liked it as well. Um, We're going to get more into this in a different episode. We're going to do kind of like a, a pros and cons head to head PA and NP discussion about Should we be doing this as PAs and NPs, some sort of a recertification test? A lot of folks have kind of given um, the profession some flack because this is a very high-stakes test, and there's a lot of, like, pressure involved. You fail this test, can't practice medicine, can't take care of your patients, can't feed your family. Was this PA really that much of a danger to medicine and the patients because they failed this test? I don't know about that, you know. So Mm -hmm. um, we'll have a link to the press release in the show notes so you can read about it. And we'll have a discussion on a future episode of the Two View for sure.
1: All right, Mike. Awesome. That's it for this month. It's time for the Two View Trivia Answer.
0: Okay. Well, last month we gave away a couple different prizes live in Las Vegas. One of our prizes was a full course from the Center for Medical Education. We gave that to one of our new friends, Eugene, I believe his name was, at the boot camp course. Shout out to Eugene. Great questions on Slido from Eugene throughout the course here. He really stayed attentive, which was awesome. He enjoyed his winnings for sure. Um, he would have liked those Jimmy Choo shoes more, <laughs> though, I think. I don't know. But um, maybe he's not a shoe guy. This month, we're giving another uh, chance to win some stuff here. And the question is going to be about Zoster.
1: First of all, what do they win? Mm. Um, Have you been to one of our CCME Emergency Medicine and Acute Care series courses? They are so much fun, great way to learn, and vacation. These courses focus on current evidence-based literature with incredible speakers, no slides, just current literature reviews, intimate meetings with our expert physicians. The last one was in November in Key West. Like I said, I was there. Um, I had some wonderful friends. We enjoyed the beaches, the weather, the excitement of the Duval Street Strip. And one of my favorite places to go for fishing, it's fantastic. We do have a few courses coming up in 2022. So take a list of all the places that we're going. And if you're still not ready for in-person, we do offer our home study course for that. And if you get this question right, you get 20% off any acute care series course.
0: Yeah, I think this is after the boot camps. This is one of my favorite courses because every year it's updated, number one. Number two, you're done by noon, and you're in a cool place usually, okay? Always in a cool place. These are all in cool places, okay? So Mm -hmm. here is that two-part question. Um, Question, both chicken pox and shingles are caused by the same virus varicella zoster vzv what does varicella mean and why is it called the chicken pox that's our two view trivia question email your guesses to us at twoviewcast at gmail.com that's the number two view cast at gmail.com and tell us who you want to give a shout out to while you're answering that question
1: So for more information about us and our faculty, visit our website featuring all our upcoming courses at www.ccme.org and consider coming to see us in uh, Las Vegas for our next course or one of our acute care series courses. And check out our home study courses as well. We have a pharmacology course, heart course, EKG course, imaging bootcamp, and more. So go ahead and check us out when you get a chance.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of The Two View. Please do subscribe. Please do rate us on Apple iTunes Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Search for Two View Emergency. That's the number Two View Emergency, and it'll come right up. Ratings help us climb the charts so that other clinicians get some good Two View goodness. If you like YouTube and you want to see the video version and blog, instead, search for Center for Medical Education, and you can catch the video version. I think it's also at ccmelive.org, so you can look at that as well. Okay, That'll redirect to the YouTube page. Don't forget our website where you can go next level on any of our topics from any of our episodes, including all the papers and sites we refer to. That's at twoview.fireside.fm. Our audio and video engineers are Ricky Bucata and Dave Pent. Show notes are by Meg Dipple.
1: Thanks again for tuning in. Well, what's wrong with me, Mike? I can't even say goodbye. Audios, <laughs> peace out. All right. Anyway, guys, thanks for tuning in, friends and EM. Share this podcast with a friend. Share your thoughts via email. And thanks for sharing your time with us today at The Two View. Have a good day and a great shift.